I am Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. Show. We are in Nevada again. I know it's hard to remember since it's been a while, and we apologize for the delay. Yeah, I would say it's primarily my fault. Uh, I discovered that when you buy a house that's fully furnished, it can be challenging when you're also moving from a house that's fully furnished. So I feel like all of my free time has been moving and purging and rearranging for the past several months. So apologize, gang, but we're back. We're going to continue our glorious and horrifying road trip through these here great United States. As long as you're not binging and purging, I guess we're okay. No, just merging and purging. It's different. Good. Much healthier. (laughs) Definitely. Definitely. So I have some delightfully strange laws from the great state of Nevada. All right. I feel like you'll enjoy these, Eden. Um... First, I'm going to start us off with a classic to get us in the mood. In Reno, Nevada, it's illegal to lie down on the sidewalk. I feel like that's a classic law that a lot of places have. And I feel like it's especially important for Nevada, since I imagine a lot of people get drunk there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure. I mean, Reno's the biggest little city. You know shenanigans happen there. And I have taken many a drunken nap in weird places, so I get it. <laughs> Uh, speaking of some, I I got no segue there. Ignore that. All right. Our next weird law. Let's dive in. Eureka, Nevada. In Eureka, Nevada, men with mustaches are forbidden from kissing women. I mean. Whoa. Yeah. It's kind of weirdly unreasonable. Like, I don't really know how that ended up on the books, but apparently somebody is not a a fan of the upper lip tickler, so. Well, you heard it first here, ladies and gentlemen, and and ladies, I don't know what you'd call non-binary people in that sentence. Um, <laughs> gentle folks. Gentle folks. Sure. Why not? I kind of like ladies, though. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that state apparently wants you to, or that city, I mean, wants you to be gay if you have a mustache. It said nothing about kissing other men. Notice oh. that. Ah. Uh. That makes sense. I hear you. Cowboys have mustaches. They must be gay cowboys. Where's their pudding? Mm-hmm. Broke back fucking mountain. <laughs> uh, well, since we're in Nevada, we have to talk about Las Vegas, right? It's like the main city in Nevada. Uh, this is the most Vegas thing I've heard. So if you're ever down on your luck and you've spent all your money at the tables in Vegas and you decide to pawn things... Know that you can pawn most things except for your dentures. Just don't do it. You need your choppers. (laughs) Also, who's going to buy your dentures? (laughs) Yeah, I don't want these dentures. Thank you. (laughs) I'm doing an art project. Do you have any dentures? (laughs) That is the only thing that I thought of myself, Nicole. Like I was literally like maybe for like an art project, but nothing to put in my mouth that's been in someone else's mouth. No, thank you. Yeah, no, 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 no. I know they're expensive, guys, but you can do better. Yeah, you can do better. In the city of Nyla, a man is forbidden from purchasing drinks for more than three people, other than himself, at any one period during the day. So I guess that makes, like, cruising happy hours a little challenging in Nyla. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was kind of odd. That is a very weird one. 
And then I started having questions. I'm like, so does it mean that like you can buy a drink for an other person and that's okay. But if it's like three or more people, you only get to do that once. You can only go up and get around for your table once. And yeah. then the next person has to go up. I have questions about this, residents yeah. of Nyla. Because I thought about it in like two different ways. Either you are there like with friends and you're buying around for people. Or you're some creeper who wants to play the numbers game. And you're like, mm-hmm. hey, pretty lady, let me buy you a drink. Hey, pretty lady, let me buy you a drink. You know, so who knows? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to head back to Reno for our next two laws because they're just weird. Reno, I get it. But like, what is happening? Damn it, Janet Reno. <laughs> uh, best attorney general name. <laughs> uh, so the benches in Reno apparently can only be placed somewhere other than the middle of the street. Uh, what? Why are there benches in the middle of your street? And does that, that mean like in what? the street or like in the medium, median in the middle of the street? Like what's happening, Reno? What's it going sounds on? to me like the middle of the fucking street. I know. And why? That's not a safe place to sit. I know. Bench crossings. There's like signs going up everywhere. Ugh. Mm-mm. Oh my God. <laughs> Reno just wants you to be uncomfortable outside. It's I just guess like, don't so. lay on the sidewalks. There's no benches in the, str- in the middle of the street. Ugh. How am I supposed to sit? <laughs> And then truly one of the strangest laws that I've seen in a while, and I'm sure there's some story behind it. I just didn't dig into it. But in Reno, it's illegal to spray paint a shopping cart in your basement. Well, I mean, that's probably a good law to have. I mean, why specifically a shopping cart, though? Why specifically in your basement? I, yeah, there, there's, there has to be some kind of crazy story to this. but Because, I mean, you shouldn't spray paint indoors. Without proper ventilation. Mm -hmm. And even then, you're better off going outside for it. But specifically shopping carts, specifically basement, very weird. Yes, super weird. And then to wrap it up, two general laws about animals in the great state of Nevada. Uh, This is super bizarre, but I kind of love it. Uh, If someone enters your property and they shoot your dog, you can legally hang that person for shooting your dog. I mean, fair. Fair. Mm-hmm. You killed my dog. Yep, yep. I feel like that must go back to the early frontier days of like, you know. I could see Cowboy that. Justice, yeah. And then last but certainly not least, it is illegal to drive a camel on the highway. So, again, questions. No answers from the internet. Uh, do they mean like drive it in a vehicle or like drive a herd of camels? Do they mean like ride? I guess not ride. ride. Camel, it's like drive, like drive, drive a, camel. a camel. Yeah. Weird, right? Maybe there was a car a long time ago called like the Chevy Camel or something. I don't know. Yeah. But probably not. I'm like, or are there like camel farms in Nevada where like the camel, like the, the camel cowboys, I don't know what you call them, camel herders? would be like herding their their camels along the highway like there's again i feel like there has to be a story behind this i've only ever seen one camel on a highway and i know you have two nicole i'm sure yeah what was it the blizzard what were they calling him the blizzard uh he was the snow camel snow camel yeah yes because for some reason i believe it was like 309 or one of the local it was the pennsylvania turnpike it was the turnpike okay Mm -hmm. but yeah for those of you that are not local uh, there was a gigantic blizzard. I remember it well because it took me a long ass time to get home from work that day. 
because they're like, oh, no, come in. It's going to be fine. And they let us go home. And they're like, good luck. Um, Took some people eight hours to get home that day. Um, And it was a 20-minute drive normally. For me, it took me four. So (laughs) that should tell you something. Yeah, people were underestimating the power of the storm system. And as a result, a lot of people got stranded on highways like the Pennsylvania Turnpike. And for some reason, some guy had a camel that he was like, you know. Transporting. Transporting in the snow with his car. And the camel was just walking alongside. The camel escaped, I think, was part of it, too. And so people who were like already stranded in their cars just see this camel like meandering up the side of the highway in the snowstorm. (laughs) He became a local celebrity, and it was kind of awesome. For sure, for sure. Well, now that we have so many more questions than when we started about the strange laws of Nevada, I'm right? Gonna, I'm going to dive into my story because I think it's uh, I think our, our our palette has been cleansed and set appropriately for this this true crime story I have for you. I believe so too, and I'm very looking forward to it. Okay, so it, I know it's been a long time since my last story. But I'm hoping you all remember it. Uh, We stopped by Whiskey Pete's, which was in Prim, Nevada. And during my intro, I mentioned how Prim used to be called State Line, but had to change its name because there was already another town in Nevada called State Line. Do you remember that at all? I do remember it, and I find it super weird. It is super weird. And the other State Line is where we're going today. (laughs) Oh. Well, you're nothing if not consistent, Nicole. True that. So the state line Nevada that we're going to today is the one that's actually on Lake Tahoe. Uh, It's right next to the California state line and the city of South Lake Tahoe, and it covers about 0.8 square miles. State line sits on the southern shore of Lake Tahoe and to the east of the California Nevada state line. It has a pretty small population with only about 932 full-time residents. But because it's situated at Lake Tahoe, its population swells during the peak summer and winter tourist seasons. The town originated as a Pony Express stop called Friday's Station in 1860. And then afterwards, it was used by the Union Army as a military outpost until the 1870s. Around that time, the two-story wood-framed white building started operating as a resort called buttermilk bonanza ranch all right that's quite the name Mm-hmm. buttermilk bonanza ranch interestingly enough this building is still intact today in state line and it's one of the only surviving pony express stations in nevada most of the town and surrounding land ha- had been maintained by the heirs of friday station aka buttermilk bonanza ranch I'm sorry. I just really want a big old sack of pancakes now because I just like I'm like, what a bizarre ranch name. (laughs) Well, come on over after this. I'll make you some pancakes from scratch. Deal. Um, So over the years, these uh, heirs to the Friday station uh, started leasing the land to casinos and resorts. Um, Given its super close location to California, the natural beauty of Lake Tahoe, which is North America's largest alpine or mountain lake. State Line is a popular destination for those looking to take to the slopes or enjoy the lake life. And also, what's better than having some fun gambling in a state where it's legal? Not much. There are four casino resorts within State Line alone. Those are Bali's Lake Tahoe, formerly Caesars and Mont Bleu, Hard Rock 
Hotel and Casino Lake Tahoe, Harvey's Lake Tahoe, and Hera's Lake Tahoe. And Hera's Lake Tahoe is our destination for today. You see, this glitzy 18-story tower with 512 rooms was the location of a swinging Rat Pack-related kidnapping. Oh, okay. This is a story of Frank Sinatra Jr.'s 1963 abduction. Okay. What? Yeah. I, I did not know about this at all, so I was absolutely fascinated by this story. I've never heard about this. All right, okay. Okay, so first things first, who the hell is Frank Sinatra Jr.? Well, he's the middle child and only son of the more famous Frank Sinatra, the singer, a.k.a. chairman of the board, a.k.a. Old Blue Eyes, and Frank's first wife, Nancy. Frank Jr. was born in Jersey City in 1944, but growing up, he hardly ever saw his famous father, who was constantly working on the road, either performing or working in films. Despite this, Frank Jr. recalled wanting to become a pianist and songwriter from his earliest childhood days. By his early teens, Frank Jr. had started performing at local clubs. At age 19, in 1963, he became the vocalist for Sam Donahue's band. As part of the Donahue band, Frank Jr. set out to play several dates in Los Angeles, Arizona, and Lake Tahoe before leaving for a months-long European tour. On the evening of December 8, 1963, Frank Sinatra Jr. and his friend John Foss, a trumpet player in the band, were enjoying a pre-show dinner of fried chicken in Frank Jr.'s hotel room. Ooh, now I want some fried chicken. <laughs> buttermilk fried chicken. Ooh, we could do chicken and waffles. Oh, that's all that buttermilk goes to a good mm. use. At roughly 9 p.m., on December 8th, 1963, there was a knock on the hotel room door. There was a delivery for Frank Jr. When he opened the door to accept it, two men forced their way inside. At gunpoint, they tied up Foss with tape and blindfolded Frank Jr., leading him out of the hotel room. They made their way through a side exit in the hotel and forced the blindfolded teenager into a waiting getaway car. Luckily, John Foss was able to break out of his bindings very quickly and alerted police. By 9.40 p.m., the FBI had, contacted, had been contacted, and local police set up a bunch of roadblocks around Lake Tahoe. As the kidnappers made their way back to California, one of the men turned to Frank Jr. and said, Your friend's going to get up soon, before we get out of Lake Tahoe, and I'm concerned that there's going to be gunplay. There's only one way this can work out, and that's if you play along with us. And we pretend we're just guys out having a good time. End quote. Frank Jr. agrees. He doesn't want anyone to get hurt. And the car pulls into a checkpoint. The kidnapper was able to convince the police that they were indeed just a bunch of guys out having a good time. Nothing to see here, officer. Nothing to see here. And they were let through. The kidnappers continued on their way to their Los Angeles hideout. So who was the smooth-talking criminal and kidnapping mastermind? So glad you asked. His name was Barry Keenan. He was a 23-year-old UCLA student who had a serious addiction problem. You see, earlier in 1963, Barry Keenan had been in a super serious car accident that resulted in a severe back injury that left him in chronic pain. And in an effort to manage his pain, Barry turned to Parodan and then started mixing in muscle relaxers and tranquilizers. He was a mess. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. 
So he got very, very addicted to painkillers. Very addicted. He was so addicted that he ended up finding himself in super deep debt, and he wasn't really sure how he could get out of it. So he devised a plan. He was a smart guy, UCLA graduate. He could figure it out. And this is the plan he came up with. Kidnap a celebrity for ransom, then invest the money. Once you make enough money to have a sizable return to pay off his debt, he was going to pay back the original ransom money. It seems like the perfect crime. Nobody got hurt, and the investment would pay off, and the original ransom would be taken care of, so nobody would lose anything. Obviously, it's not going to go according to plan. According to a 1998 New Times Los Angeles interview, Keenan, quote, decided upon Junior because Frank Sr. was tough, and I had friends whose parents were in show business, and I knew Frank always got his way. It wouldn't be morally wrong to put, a th- put him through a few hours of grief worrying about his son, end quote. It wouldn't be morally wrong. Okay. <laughs> we can go with that if that's how you want to swing this, but... Sure, Barry. Sure. <laughs> so, Keenan knew he would need help, so he asked his high school buddy, uh, Joe Amsler, who was also out of work, and a guy named John Irwin, who had dated his mom previously to join in on his abduction plans with a $100 a week retainer provided for their assistance. The three men spent a couple of weeks planning, and eventually they decided that they should start following Frank Jr.'s shows with the Sam Donahue band to learn his schedule and look for an opportunity to snatch him. That was smart. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're not dumb guys. They're just, it's like intelligence viewed through this like hazy detached from reality lens of addiction right yeah keenan and amsler attend the shows in los angeles and they don't really have an opportunity then they travel to arizona and they end up trying but abandoning some initial attempts to grab the teenage singer the whole time amsler is kind of trying to convince keenan that this isn't the best idea and they can figure something else out to pay off his debt but keenan has his mind set on pulling off this kidnapping Knowing that the band's European days were fast approaching, Keenan decides that Lake Tahoe will be their absolute best and last chance to pull off the abduction. Within an hour of the kidnappers making their getaway with Frank Jr., the FBI was contacted. Uh, They, in turn, reached out to Frank Sinatra Sr. and his ex-wife Nancy about the situation with their son. They told him that the crime was likely motivated by financial gain and that the kidnappers would attempt to contact him pretty soon. They suggested that Sinatra wait to hear from the kidnappers, figure out what their demands were, and then give in. The FBI would provide Sinatra with traceable money and then arrest the criminals. Sure enough, as soon as Keenan and Amsler made it back to their suburban Los Angeles hideout, they asked John Irwin to act as the point of contact for the ransom scheme. Irwin called. Sinatra, and advised that his son was safe and that he'd receive more instructions soon. Irwin also issued a warning. Sinatra was only to contact the kidnappers via payphone to avoid phone taps. Deviating from this could jeopardize Frank Jr.'s safety. On December 10th, two days after the kidnapping, Irwin contacted Sinatra again, demanding $240,000. That's equivalent to about $2.2 million today. 
Wow. Yeah. It's a big chunk of change in the 60s. Unfortunately, the call ended prematurely because Sinatra ran out of dimes for his payphone. He immediately panicked and fearing for his son's life. After reestablishing contact with the kidnappers, he offered them a million dollars for his son's safe return. Oddly, the kidnappers declined this offer, which is like, what? Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> He's going to give you a million? And you're like, no, no, just the 240000 please. That's, that's, that's what we allotted for. Thanks. Okay, I thought they were smart before. No, not anymore. Well, I think this is because they're still operating under Keenan's initial plan that he wants to pay back the ransom. So he doesn't want to pay back a million dollars. He wants to pay back that that $240 million. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. So Frank Sinatra agrees to leave the $240,000 in ransom money between two parked school buses at a Texaco station in Sepulveda, California. Uh, quick fun fact for you. This experience that Sinatra had where he's trying to negotiate with kidnappers and he ran out of change had a really deep impact on him. So much so that he started carrying around like for the rest of his life, like a roll of dimes in his pocket to make sure that if he ever had to use payphones, he would never run out of any change. And it was like a well-known strange habit that Frank had where he would just always have dimes in his pocket. Um, and it's kind of, it's kind of beautiful if you think about it, right? It's a man who loves his family so much. He's like, if I'm ever in this situation again, I'm going to make sure I have these dimes. I'll be prepared for it. And it's almost like a symbol of the love for his family. And when he passed away and was buried, they actually, his family actually put a roll of dimes in his pocket, which I thought was beautiful. What's a payphone? No, I'm joking. <laughs> right? <sighs> like a payphone that takes a dime. What are those? <laughs> Anyway, back to the story. I digress. So the FBI catalogs the bills for the $240,000 ransom, and they actually proceed to make the drop, just in case there's any danger, to Sinatra himself. And they drop it off in the early morning of December 11th, as instructed. When Keenan and Amsler go to collect it, John Irwin panics a little bit, and he prematurely releases Frank Jr., Frank Jr. ends up walking several miles before he's able to find help. He's then immediately whisked to the privacy and safety of his mom Nancy's house, where he's reunited with his great parents. Frank Jr. describes what he knew about the kidnappers to the FBI agents, but he had barely seen them because he was blindfolded most of the time, and he only heard the voice of the third kidnapper during his ordeal. At first, A few weeks go by, and it seems like the kidnappers had gotten away with it. But then authorities get this massive break in the case. So it turns out John Irwin was going to lay low in a safe house that he knew of in New Orleans. But before he headed out there, he decided to visit his brother in San Diego. While he was visiting his brother, he just couldn't help but confess to his involvement in the kidnapping of Frank Jr. His brother was horrified and called police. All the kidnappers were arrested within hours of the police being notified, and nearly all of the ransom money was recovered. Oh, wow. Okay. Crazy, right? Yeah. It's about to get a little bit more crazy. Okay, I like crazy. (laughs) So, the kidnappers' trial begins on February 10th, 1964. Oh, a crazy trial? Even better. Yes. So, at first, Keenan and his defense team testify that the crime wasn't a crime at all. It was just this elaborate hoax. It was a publicity stunt 
that the Sinatra family, friends, and publicists decided to, to drum up to get more attention for Frank Jr.'s burgeoning singing career. Seems plausible, but unfortunately for Keenan, the FBI had really strong evidence that proved that assertion was false. During their investigation, they had come across a safety deposit box that had a letter from Keenan where he actually documents the plot about kidnapping Frank and makes it very clear that this is something that he has devised and executed. Why he had it in a safety deposit box, why you would write that down, unclear. Again, he's heavily addicted to painkillers at this point, so who knows. As a side effect of this defense claim, there was this rumor that Frank Jr. or his family were involved with his own kidnapping for like years after the trial. It was kind of one of those like whispered about in circles, like maybe it is true. You never know, blah, 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 which I thought was completely fascinating. Yeah. As the trial wraps up, uh, both Keenan and Amsler were sentenced to life in prison plus 75 years, which, if you're wondering, is the maximum sentence. And in California at that time, when you were given a maximum sentence like this, you were qualified for psychiatric observation too. Irwin, meanwhile, wasn't given quite as stiff a sentence. He was just sentenced to 75 years versus life in prison. But he was a middle-aged guy, so it's essentially life in prison. Now, during the psychiatric observation, the doctors ruled that Keaton was actually, probably, most likely, definitely, legally insane at the time of the kidnapping. And that's mostly due to his severe addiction to drugs. I thought this was kind of interesting and charming because in today's day and age, I feel like people are so unforgiving of addiction that this would not happen. Yeah. But it was the 60s, and I think people were just trying to understand how someone could behave that way. So because of this predicating circumstances of the severe addiction and Keenan not being legally sane at the time of the kidnapping, a judge determined as well that none of the men fit the typical criminal profile of a kidnapper and that they didn't actually act with criminal malice, mostly because the plan was, we're just going to do this to make a little money and no one's going to get hurt. Um, so they went that, that, so that naivety that they had went a long way to the judge's decision to actually reduce their sentences. And they were really big sentence reductions. Life in prison was reduced to 25 years and John Irwin's sentence of 75 years was also reduced to 25 years. In the end, Amsler and Irwin both ended up only serving three years before they were released on parole, and Keenan served four and a half. Now for the truly bizarre part. Because, again, we had a bizarre kidnapping, we have a bizarre trial, and now we have the bizarre after what happened to these guys. Ooh, bizarre aftermath. Frank Sinatra Jr. obviously never became as famous as his father, but he did have a pretty successful career as a songwriter. Keenan, however, Barry Keenan was released from prison in 1968, and he became a multimillionaire in real estate. Mm, okay. By 1983, his net worth was $17 million, so he was a pretty smart guy, and maybe he could have turned that ransom money into something, but probably not because he was addicted to pills. <laughs> <laughs> and after the 1998 New Times Los Angeles interview was published, which I also used as a source for this story, uh, Columbia Pictures offered Keener, Amsler, and Irwin $1.5 million for the film rights to their story. Because it's a pretty crazy story, and I would love to yeah. see it. I'm sure they were like, people would love to see this on the big screen. Well, Frank Jr. promptly filed a lawsuit to block the deal, 
based on the California statute that forbids felons from financially profiting from their stories of their crimes. Which I agree with. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a very important law to have. Keenan, who was in his late 50s at the time, argued that the law violated his First Amendment rights. And there was a really long protracted legal battle with several appeals. But eventually Frank Jr. won the case and they were not allowed to move forward with producing the film or the film deal. However, something must have happened and Keenan got around it somehow. Because in 2003, Showtime produced a movie called Stealing Sinatra. Uh, it starred David Arquette as Barry Keenan and William Ace Macy as John Irwin. I'm going to have to check this out. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, what? What? David Arquette? William H. Macy? Like, what the heck? These are like legit actors that we all know. And I've never heard of this. For sure. And apparently there's another movie in the works currently. Um, it was announced in, I think, 2020, 2019. Uh, it's also going to be about the kidnapping of Frank Sinatra Jr. It's called Operation Blue Eyes is its working title. It's going to be directed by Joe Montagna, and it will feature Grant Gusson, a.k.a. TV's The Flash, as Keenan. Okay. Yeah, when I dug into these a little bit, like there are certain things that are, it's almost like a based on a true story vibe. It's like certain things are not true about Keenan's life. Like, and, and one of them, it's sort of like he has this, ex-wife and another it's like he's not addicted to drugs and blah 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 so like they kind of i think that's how he got around it it's, it's yeah. not a hundred percent like a biopic it's more of like an inspired by a true story sort of wackiness but i just thought that was so fascinating that like even after the kidnapping even after the jail sentence and the crazy trial there was still this sort of drama surrounding the the kidnapping of frank sinatra jr like you know a full 40 years after it happened yeah definitely yeah, so that's my story for Nevada swinging Rat Pack goodness and a weird kidnapping story you never knew about that I didn't know about. Yeah, that's crazy. Like, I never, ever heard this before. I'm very surprised. It's funny. I, you know, asked my mom about it because it's a, you know, story she might remember. She was, yeah. you know, a, a young teen in this at this time. I was like, do you remember Frank Sinatra's son getting kidnapped? She's like, oh, yeah. Ugh, that guy's no talent. Uh. <laughs> Which I thought was hilarious. And then she actually was like, I think, wasn't he involved in his own kidnapping? I was like, interesting. That's the rumor. And like the fact that that's what she like remembered, you know, 60 years later, I think is very fascinating that she remembered that like defense tactic from the trial that's as like crazy. Yeah. yeah. My mom actually, I looked over right now. It's so funny because when you mentioned your mom, my mom started calling me on my phone. <laughs> um, I'm wondering if she would remember it too. Maybe, maybe. Uh, my sources for today's story were Wikipedia, only in your state, Urbo.com, Deadline.com, Esquire Magazine, New Times Los Angeles, and FBI.gov. Well, thank you, Nicole. That was an interesting story with a celebrity, which is different than what we normally do. I liked it. Mm -hmm. Great. I'm glad you enjoyed it. All right, so I guess we will take a little break, and I'll be back with the news and my story. And we're back. So first up, the news, which comes from news.artnet.com. And the headline is, A man broke into the Dallas Museum of Art and smashed ancient Greek artifacts because he was, quote, mad at his girl. What the fuck, bro? I know, right? Ooh, the damage could be more than 5 million, some experts say. 
and the article goes on to say, The Dallas Museum of Art is assessing the damage of several ancient objects after a man reportedly broke into the museum on Wednesday night and smashed them. The suspect has been identified as 21-year-old Brian Hernandez, who broke in around 10 p.m. because he told authorities he was, quote, mad at his girl, end quote. Mm. Mm. Not a good reason, buddy. A representative for the Dallas Police Department confirmed to Artnet News via email that officers responded to a burglary in progress at the museum and that the suspect, quote, damaged several ancient artifacts, end quote. Hernandez left the museum and was later located and taken into custody. The museum did not immediately respond to a request for comment. A total of three ancient Greek artifacts dating to the 5th and 6th centuries BCE were badly damaged, the New York Times reported, citing museum's officials. Museum director Augustin, something I can't pronounce, said that Hernandez broke into the institution by repeatedly striking a glass door with a steel chair. So he must watch wrestling as well. (laughs) Arteaga, I believe the last name is pronounced. Arteaga, we'll go with that, said the items are insured and have a value of one million or more, but said that the actual cost of the destruction will not be known until after an official investigation, official damage assessment, sorry. Wow. Other reports put the estimated damage at a level of more than $5 million. Arteaga also said that the intruder was not trying to steal the objects. There, there was no intention, from what we can see, of stealing anything, of damaging any work of art in a deliberate way. It was just someone who was going through a moment of anger and found this as a way to express it. The damaged items include a Greek bowl from the 6th century BCE featuring vignettes of Heracles grappling with an Nemean lion, a red figure Pyxis, P-Y-X-I-S, or cylindrical container with a lid, okay, from the 5th century BCE, a ceramic amphora from the 6th century BCE, and a ceramic container by the contemporary Native American artist Arteaga told the Times. Hernandez was charged with felony mischief. The incident at the Dallas Museum of Art marks the second time that art was targeted for an attack. On Sunday at the Louvre Museum, a man in a wheelchair wearing a wig threw cake at the iconic Mona Lisa painting. (laughs) What? She looked hungry. She looked hungry. According to Artnet's report earlier this week, Citing videos and eyewitness accounts, the perpetrator first attempted to break the sheet of bulletproof glass that protects the Mona Lisa before smearing cake on it. And that is the end of the article. Like, this is the thing that, like, makes me so irritated is that, like, these objects survive literally 1,500, 2,000, 2,500 years. But they can't survive the assholery of a douchebag who doesn't know how to handle his emotions. Well, assholery has evolved over the years, Nicole. Sure, this is modern day assholery, <laughs> which is a lot less. Like, 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 amazing, amazing. Ugh. Right? This is why we can't have nice things. Exactly, because people will throw cake at the Mona Lisa. Exactly. Cake at the Mona Lisa. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, thanks for that weird news story, Eden. It made me angry, but also deeply appreciate how terrible others can be. I'm yes. ready for your weird, strange, paranormal story now. <laughs> well, hopefully this one will make you much happier or way more scared for your life. Who knows? Fair enough. My story for this week takes place in Tonopah, Nevada. Tonopah, and I swear I don't actually try to do this, but it's happening again. It's the <laughs> county seat of Nye County. hey It has a population of 2,179 and is 9.26 square miles. It's nicknamed the Queen of Silver Camps, as this town has a rich history in mining, which is not uncommon for Nevada or really most of the western United States. It was founded in 1900 when a prospector named Jim Butler found silver ore there. It went the way of most mining towns and now has a much smaller population, and the largest employer is now Tonopah Test Range, which, you guessed it, tests nuclear bombs because I guess no one has seen The Hills Have Eyes. I would not have guessed that. I would like, oh, a test range? Like a test track? Like, what are they testing? It's like, nukes. They're testing nukes, nukes. Nicole. <laughs> yep, exactly. Do you want, like, radiated hillbillies that, you know, try to kill you? Because this is how you get that. Um, <laughs> it was also the base of operations for the development of the F-177 Nighthawk. I used to love how those bad boys looked as a kid. Have you ever seen one, Nicole? I don't think I have. They were a stealth attack aircraft, which ran from October of 1983 to April 22nd of 2008. Were those the ones that looked like a black boomerang? Is that the stealth fighter? I remember there's a stealth plane when we were kids. Kind of like, yeah, it does kind of look is. a bit like a boomerang. Like, think about like the X-Men uh, and think about the, oh, what the hell was there? Oh, yeah, the plane they had. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Kind of like that. The Blackbird is what they called it. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So it, it kind of looks a little like that, but it's like very, very triangular and it, it's really cool. I had like a little model of it when I was a kid because I mm. guess I was a nerd. I don't know. I guess I still <laughs> am a nerd, but that's besides the point. Um, so the name of the town itself is uh, Shoshone and is said to mean hidden spring, but either comes from Tenuv or Tenav, okay. both of which mean greasewood, and the word pa means water. As far as famous people go or things to do, there isn't much in a town this size. A physicist by the name of Hugh Bradner is from Tonopah. He's the guy who invented the neoprene wetsuit. Okay. Wyatt Earp is also from here. That fucking guy. No, just kidding. <laughs> For things to do, everything is pretty much centered around alcohol consumption or mining history. So if you want to get drunk and then learn about mining, then this is the place for you. I'm here to talk about an interesting little spot with a haunted history. Uh, before I tell you what it is, Nicole, do you suffer from colorphobia by any chance? Is that fear of clowns? Yes, is it that... is. Okay, I do not. Clowns are unsettling, of course, sometimes, but I'm not truly scared of them because i have friends who are and i'm like what it's a clown they're like it's a fucking clown and they'll like cross the street to get away from this clown they're creepy as fuck i will say it was really funny um you know every halloween um some of our, our friends do a little haunted house out of their garage and we do a different theme every year when we did the carnival of horror i was a creepy clown as was my wife it was 
so unsettling for some people, including one of our other friends who was there, that she would like leave the room when I was in the room with her. Oh my god! <laughs> I didn't make I did not make it any better because I had this creepy clown laugh. And I was like, <laughs> Oh like, no, I don't like that laugh. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, please stop. I'm like, okay, sorry, but yeah, it's amazing how many people like were like, nope, I'm out. Yeah, and see, I mean. I I wouldn't consider myself to be like afraid of clowns, but they definitely are creepy. They're very creepy. Now I'm really excited for your story. <laughs> yeah, if any of you do suffer from that phobia, uh, this might be a tough one to get through since I'm taking you to the Clown Motel and Old Tonopah <gasps> Cemetery. Oh no, I feel like this Clown Motel, I've heard somebody mention it in passing and I was like, this seems really creepy. I don't know if I can handle doing a whole story about it, but I'm glad you did it. Yeah, I was like, you know what? Clowns, clowns are going to scare a lot of people. We're going to do this. Just the mention of clowns has <laughs> probably terrified half our audience. Um... <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go to Clown Town. Yeah. Let me just start off saying this may be a twofer episode, but the cemetery and the motel are right next to each other, so the hauntings are, you know, most likely due to that. The motel was voted the scariest motel in America, and with good reason, without even getting into the whole ghost thing. One poll I found said 42% of Americans said that they were afraid of clowns, and honestly, the real number I'd say would be higher because clowns are creepy as hell. There's a reason Stephen King wrote it. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. I myself am more freaked out about mimes for some reason, but I still mm. don't like clowns. Like mimes are like real weird for some reason, probably because they don't talk. Yes. I, I think people, they unnerve people because they don't talk. I will say too, I feel like it in particular, like the TV movie, it and the yeah. book it like really is something that made clown dislike much more prevalent for people our age and younger because of because of how terrifying that movie was absolutely yes 1990 was a very scary year for anyone afraid of clowns i guess <laughs> it's everywhere and it's so crazy like looking over cuz like i saw that way back when and mm -hmm. then like i looked at the cast recently and i was like cuz all i remembered was john ritter I remember John Ritter, and then I was like, well, who else is in that? Oh, yeah, John Boy Walton was in it. Uh, and the freaking kids. Yeah. Seth Green was one of them. Yeah, Emily Perkins. And Emily Perkins, yes. Mm-hmm. I thought that was crazy. I'm, I'm obsessed with Emily Perkins just because, I mean, I first saw her in Ginger Snaps, and then I've seen her in a bunch of other stuff. She was a receptionist in Juno when she went to the abortion clinic, and she was one of my favorite characters on Supernatural. Yes, she was wrote... great in... Dirty fanfic about the oh, that's right. brothers. <laughs> she wrote the sexy brother fanfic. I forgot about that on Supernatural. Yes. She's also great in the Amanda Bynes Tatum uh, Channing Tatum classic. Uh, she she's, she's the, the man. man. I've she's never like, seen that movie. Oh, it's next movie night. It's so delightfully charming. <laughs> I will. I will definitely watch that. Maybe I'll have to read some Shakespeare beforehand to understand the source material. But <laughs> you know, I'm sure they're so close. Um. <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. But continue. So in a scientific study that I found where 987 adults from 64 countries participated, 53.5% has some degree of fear of clowns. That's more than half. That's crazy. Yeah. So when searching for statistics, you know how Google has questions with like a drop down thing for the answer? Yep. Well, 
The question was, what is the least common fear? And I couldn't help myself, and I had to see it. Apparently, it is called arachibutrophobia. Arachibutrophobia. If I'm even saying any of that right. Uh, And it is the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. I mean, that's just an inconvenience. I wouldn't call it a fear. Okay. I'm not, like, afraid of it. I hate when it happens. But... (laughs) I mean, you're, you're eating that delicious peanut butter. You're taking that risk. You knew what you were doing. Yeah. Um, doesn't doesn't the deliciousness outweigh the fear? Every time really should does. be the answer. <laughs> but anyway, back to the story. Obviously, the people that made this motel, besides being unhinged just a little because they'd have to be, mm-hmm. um, knew this is a pretty big fear. And although I had never heard of this place, it seems to be a pretty popular tourist destination. The motel was first opened in 1985 by two siblings named Leona and Leroy to honor their father who was buried in the cemetery next door, and the first 150 clowns displayed here were their fathers. Hmm. It was purchased in 1995 by Bob and Deborah Perchetti, and then it was bought in 2019 by a man named Vijay Mihar. He worked in five-star hotels before this as a master chef in three different countries that I know of. Uh, However, Travel Channel said the owner's name is Heme Anand, so I don't know, but I got the other name directly from the motel's website, so take that for what you will. Um, Fair enough. He bought this old, rundown motel and transformed it into the brightly colored creep fest that we know today. (laughs) The outside is painted with vivid hues like a circus and features fun colored doors to the rooms and polka dots and, of course, clowns. The clown on its sign even has a name, Jolly the Clown. But he is far from the only clown here. And the others, I will say, are a bit less jolly. And clowns (laughs) are not the only thing featured. So... The rooms are themed, and other than Pennywise, for those of you living under a rock, that's the clown from the movie slash book It, um, there are other horror-themed rooms featuring Friday the 13th, Halloween, and The Exorcist. It is also home to a clown museum boasting over 3,000 clowns. Wow. So they're, like, leaning into the horror and the clowns at the same time. I love it. Oh, yes. Uh, They have 31 rooms, all uniquely decorated in the early clown style. Um, Of course. Contemporary clowns just so gauche. Exactly. (laughs) Eleanor Shellstrop would think that she was back in the bad place if she saw this place. Um, (laughs) I forgot about that. Each room has heating and cooling, a TV, coffee maker, microwave, and fridge. Uh, There's also free Wi-Fi, and they have four rooms which are pet-friendly. The themed rooms that are made to be like horror movies are super weird because it's not just like Regan from The Exorcist. It's Regan from The Exorcist, but she's also a clown, and it's just weird. Oh, fuck that. That sounds absolutely creepy as shit. (laughs) Exactly. No, thank you. (laughs) Nope. Looking over the website at a few of the rooms, most of them aren't that scary, thankfully. The scariest for me was by far Room 107, and it is called Fear Unlimited, and literally is covered with clowns 
and what appears to be that guy with the eyes in his hands from Pan's Labyrinth. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you remember that movie? Yes, I like that movie a lot. Yes, and he was like really freaking creepy. Um. So yeah, he's on the wall there too, along with clowns. Because why not? The rooms look reasonably sized and very clean, uh, and range from $85 to $150 a night. Now, let's get into the cemetery across the street. It was built in 1901, and since this was a mining town, can you guess who was buried there? Miners? That's right. Miners and plague victims. Oh, hello. There's a lot to unpack there, so I'll start with the plague. This occurred in 1905, and although it is called a plague, by all accounts, it's not as bad as it seems. Uh, Between January and April, 56 people in mining camps died of pneumonia, and the general consensus here is that it was caused by unsanitary conditions and their close proximity to a slaughterhouse. Oh, yeah. No, no thanks. That sounds awful. Yeah. So that information comes from the Los Angeles Herald article that I read uh, from 1905, but I found another source that said it, quote, decimated the population, end quote. I guess it kind of depends on how big the mining camp is, if it decimates them or if it's like, and I don't know if that would be so easy for somebody from Los Angeles to really quantify, right? Am I crazy? That is true. Yeah, I see what you're saying there. I would still tend to cite a little more at the newspaper since the population in 1905 was still around 5,000 people. Ah. So while not great, it's also not decimation. Fair. However, after finding all of that, I saw yet another old newspaper article, but could not find which newspaper it was from. Uh, But it was a guy named H.M. Cushing talking about the plague, and he said that people were dying um, within four to 48 hours of getting sick. Wow, that's crazy. Crazy short yeah. timeline. Yeah, he said that in the three days he was there, he saw nine, then 11, then 15 deaths. Uh, he admitted in the article that the story was greatly exaggerated that was, you know, being told at the time. Um, but his story seemed really weird, too. He said that the bodies were dissected, a.k.a. autopsied for normal people terms, And each person's liver was black and hard as stone, which I could be wrong, but I didn't think that happens with pneumonia victims. No, that definitely doesn't sound like pneumonia. Pneumonia is like a lung infection. I don't understand why your liver would be rock hard unless they were heavy, heavy drinkers. Exactly. I tried to look it up, but everything kept coming back with either like COVID-19 or people who get pneumonia who already had bad livers. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, so this event in history was also called the Death Harvest, which just sounds like the most metal thing I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, that is definitely the name of like a Swedish death metal album. <laughs> Absolutely. Death Harvest. Um, <gasps> um anyway. Uh there were also 27 pneumonia deaths before this from 1901 to 1902 as well. I could not find when this pneumonia outbreak ended. However, it may very well have been April of 1905. That Um, makes sense because those tend to be 
like a winter uh, a winter illness, and then as the weather gets warmer and people can go outside, the the sickness spreads less frequently. True. Other than the plague victims, there's another big incident that occurred which led to more bodies in this cemetery. The Belmont Mine Fires, which occurred February 23, 1911. This fire occurred, or at least they think this was the cause, uh, because of a candle left burning by some timber, which mm. then caught fire on a winds, which is a connection between different levels of a mine. Uh, basically, this fire was small and should have been easy to put out. Smoke was first spotted around 5.50 a.m. They did not find the fire for another hour or two, and again, while this hadn't been a huge fire, several factors led to the deaths of 17 men working that day. One of which was the reversal of air currents, pushing the smoke into parts of the mine that were supposed to be safe. Uh, oh. Not everyone promptly left when told, and the people who were trying to fight the fire didn't know very much about firefighting. Yikes. The 28-year-old cage operator, William Murphy, or Big Bill as he was called, was one of those 17 people who died in this fire, and he did so while trying to save others on his third trip back into the mine. In 2006, they erected a statue to his memory, which is pretty cool. The three others I want to talk about a little who are buried here are Bina Veralt, uh, Thomas Logan, and George Devil Davis. Bina Veralt was a woman from New York City, and I could only find limited information on her. Uh, no one seems to know when she was born, but she died in 1909 of heart failure, possibly due to alcoholism, and was buried in the cemetery. She came to Tonopah from New York because she was hiding from the law, but only one article told me anything of what she did. Everyone else just kept saying that she was smart and pretty and elegant. And hiding from the law. On the yes. lam. So apparently she and another woman would seduce men and I, I guess kill them, uh, since their plan was to be rich widows, the article said. Um, oh, the, like a black widow killer. Okay. Yes. So the two would then steal the clothes and jewelry from these men. And they were pretty good at this and took enough stuff to rack up $2.5 million in today's money. <laughs> or they just like hustling these guys being like, I'm not a prostitute, but you're just so darn charming. And then like rob them blind and roll them like in the words of Missy Elliott, I'm not a prostitute, but I can give you what you want. <laughs> George Devil Davis was the first African-American man in Tonopah. His story is pretty horrible. Uh, he was murdered by his wife when she shot him in the back. Ooh. In his life, he was a local political leader, and he was well-liked by the community. His wife only served one year in prison due to the fact that the reason she murdered him was because he was abusive. Okay. Finally, there's Sheriff Thomas Logan who was, quote, shot while trying to save others in a local brothel, end quote. Apparently, he died in Manhattan, Nevada, while trying to save the brothel's madam. She was being harassed by a drunk gambler when he was trying to get this guy out of the brothel. He was shot five times, yet somehow managed to survive long enough to subdue the guy until the deputy arrived. Wow. Their cemetery only lasted 10 years, 
and was no longer used after 1911. The rumor was because it was full of all these dead bodies, but really only around 300 people or so are buried there, I think. Hmm. Um, The real reason they stopped using it is because the tailings of the Tonopah Extension Mine kept washing over the graves, which is destroying the headstones. Uh, Tailing is ore residue. Okay. So basically it's like, this isn't ideal because we have to keep replacing these headstones because it's too close to the mine tailing. Exactly. So what they did, though, when they were replacing them is they tried to make them as close to the originals as possible to keep up authenticity, which is cool. And they did, after a while, start putting the causes of death, or the supposed causes of death, at least, on the tombstones as well. Hmm. When it comes to hauntings, people have seen and felt things both at the Clown Motel and the cemetery. It's always seemed a little weird to me to have haunted cemeteries, honestly. Like, whether it's an intelligent haunting or residual energy, I just think it's weird to haunt a cemetery, since there's usually not an attachment to that place for spirits. But it does Mm -hmm. seem to happen quite frequently, according to stories. So maybe there's just a bunch of edgy goth ghosts chilling there and smoking their cloves. (laughs) So let's talk about the motel first. As if clowns weren't enough, guests have reported disembodied laughter in the corridors. And one man even woke up to a fully corporeal clown apparition. Um... I want to say nope, but also I'm like, how deep are these owners into like freaking people out? Because, oof, right. Well, I'll definitely get to 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 what I think this is later on. Because at this point, I was like, kind of let's take this one with a grain of salt. Because a clown motel very well might make you see very scary clowns standing exactly. above your bed in the middle of the night. You know, exactly. Other guests have reported feeling like there's someone in the room with them but they don't see anyone around. Um, One guest said the owner was very sweet, so this has nothing to do with him, but he just got very, very bad vibes from the place. And as you know, I scour reviews for some of my haunting information on TripAdvisor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this one review was too funny not to share. It just said, the staff was very nice. The ghosts were very nice. The clowns were very nice. I'm not buying what you're selling, sweetheart. Try again. One guest said they woke up in the middle of the night to what felt like a small dog or cat crawling into bed with them, but nothing was there when they looked. Ugh, gross. I know. Like, I hate that when there is a small cat crawling into bed with me. I'm going to hate it even more if I can't figure out what it is. Exactly, because then I'm going to be like, are there are there mice or very large yeah. rats? Like, what yeah. What is that? Someone saw a clown ghost running through the parking lot holding a ham. A ham? Yes. <laughs> like a honey baked ham is just like running. <laughs> and then they found something on the walls later that was greasy and they said it was, must be ham residue. Oh my God. You know what? That's the most clown thing I've heard in a while. Right? They're really hamming it up. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> oh, God. That was a knee slapper for sure. Very dad jokey. <laughs> One of the workers, when cleaning up, saw a woman in a, by a window just peeking her head out. And she told the woman, hey, you can't be back here. And when she went to check on the woman, the woman was gone. Okay. So this may have been Bina. 
because I had other sources say that Bina haunts the hotel and pretty much just likes to stand by the windows looking out. Interesting. She's also said to hang out at the visitor center of the Tonopah Historic Mining Park, so she's one busy ghost. <laughs> she gets around that, Bina. Yeah. George Devil Davis can also be seen at the cemetery and also playing pranks at the Tonopah Liquor Company, so another very busy ghost. At the hotel, they've done EVP and said they've gotten stuff like, We Mind. And we died that day, 17 men, referring to the fire. Wow, that's spooky. Yeah. An unknown ghost of a man can be seen just walking around the cemetery and outside of the motel. There seems to be a common theme of clown ghosts, and they call him the trickster, as they believe he's not really a clown, but rather a ghost taking the form of a clown to play pranks. Which, in theory, is a clown. Yes. This happens a lot in the It Room, which should be no surprise. Apparently that one and the Exorcist one are the most haunted. Okay. They also say the clowns on display in the motel may act as vessels for the spirits of the dead miners, which is just super creepy. Extra creepy, extra creepy. People have also seen shadowy figures and heard plenty of weird noises and disembodied voices here. Um, on a final note, on a more mundane level, is that I did see quite a few one-star reviews for this place talking about an issue with like pipes bursting and black mold, holes in the walls, and mystery stains. Others, however, have said that they had a great stay here, so take that for what you will. Interesting. Were, the, were those like from a certain time period? Because that happens sometimes when a hotel has a problem. But if it's like kind of consistent, then that's a little bit like maybe you're not. Maybe it's not ghost. Maybe it's mold. Yeah, I, I didn't really check the dates, so I'm not sure. I think they seem to be like the newer ones. Hmm. But I'm not sure. So my sources for this week were Wikipedia, VegasCoast.com. TravelChannel.com, because yes, Zach has done this place. Uh, TripAdvisor.com, AtlasObscura.com, TonopahNevada.com, ODMP.org, FindAGrave.com, USMiningDisasters.com, WeirdUniverse.net, Vox.com, ScienceAlert.com, and TheClownMotelUSA.com. Nice. Well, thanks for digging into the spooky, extra creepy clown hotel and adjacent graveyard, Eaton. Uh, I think that's something that absolutely popped up on like the weird place list for Nevada. And it was indeed weird and horrifying. So it definitely was. I don't want any clown ghosts in my life. Thank you very much. No, like I'm still like seeping in the idea of minor ghosts taking over the clown costumes. I'm like, that's a horror movie right there. Oh, exactly. Blend in a little Silent Hill with some It. Like, super duper terrifying. <laughs> uh, no, thank you. <laughs> well, I guess that brings us to the end of Nevada Part 2, which is very exciting. Um, I know it's been a while since we recorded. Where are we going next? I'm trying to remember. California. 
California. That's the last of the continental U.S. And then we just have Alaska and Hawaii. That's right. California, here we come. Golden State awaits. It does. Until then, if you guys want to get in contact with us, you can do that a number of ways. We are on all the social media platforms, including still Twitter, even though we barely use it. We just don't. I don't even check it anymore. <laughs> I know. I'm like, Meh. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Roadside Horror. Uh, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Roadside Horror Show. If you would like to send us an email, you can do so by sending it to Roadside Horror Show at gmail.com. We'd like to thank E. Massey and Yox Rocks Design for our intro and outro music and our wonderful logo. Until next time, everybody. Creep, Creep on, on, creeping, creeping on. on.